I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again today. I'm delighted to be chatting to Brantley Turner and drawing on 25 years of China-based work in 10 years as the founding principal of the only Sino-US independent, cooperatively run high school approved by the Ministry of Education in China. Brantley is consistently ahead of the conversations that others are having about globalised education for the 21st century. She is committed to restless innovation in leadership and management, school improvement and a cutting-edge arts programme that drives student outcomes unmatched in China. This unique school setting is used as an example for policy making in Beijing that shapes education in China and around the world. Now, Brantley is recognised for her pioneering work with East-West school leadership and impeccable Chinese communication skills. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Brantley Turner. Hi, Brantley. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. This is truly an international conversation. So why don't we start by you explaining exactly where you are in the world at this moment? Sure, Mark. It's so lovely to meet you and and have a chance to chat with you today. So I'm actually coming today from New York, which is my hometown, home state, and only just recently had the opportunity to come back to the U.S. from China. So I've spent the last three years very much only in China, and uh, I'm enjoying a little bit of a trip outside at the moment. Um, So let's just dive into that a little bit in terms of why were you in China specifically and, and what was that role um, as, as, as you were sort of getting more and more involved there? So I have a long history in China, considering I'm not a Chinese national. I'm, I'm American, as you can hear from my voice. But I started journeying to China in 1993 and around Asia and ultimately moved to China and have spent about the last 23 out of 29 years living and working in China. And so even though my adulthood uh, was primarily spent in China, I've done a lot of different things. So not only worked in education, but really had an opportunity to do many different jobs. The last 10 years really focused solely on a school that I started in, in Shanghai, which is kind of, I guess, the story of today. Absolutely. So let, let's let's go into exactly into that because that's that's different than just saying I'm just going to get a job in a different country. <laughs> that that's a whole different way of being. So so take us down that, through that journey there for sure. So when I first started traveling to China, it was really to study, and I was focused on learning Mandarin. I had the opportunity to start studying Chinese. Because when I was 17, just before I started university, my parents moved from New York to Hong Kong. So we were not an Asia-oriented family. It was a work opportunity for my parents. And it really opened up a whole world for me. I I wasn't a a child that 
lived abroad as a young person and, and had a lot of that exposure prior to their move. So although I didn't move with them because I was starting university, I did have the chance to start traveling. So very much at the beginning, it was a traveler's journey. And I know that sometimes you can have an international education, the, the traveler who becomes the teacher because they just want to stay. And in a lot of ways, my journey to education was much less linear. So when I started university, I studied East Asian studies and art semiotics and was kind of looking, was I going to go more in the arts direction or in the education direction? And when I finished a graduate program in China, I decided, you know, my only real interest was having as much local exposure as I could. And what I mean by that is I wanted to work in a place where I spoke Chinese every day. Now, the education options at the time, so this would have been 1999-2000, the education options at the time were teaching English, which I have done, which I am not good at. Um, and I realized very quickly that kind of the English as a second language route was not going to be the best fit for me. The other thing was, at that time, as a, as a foreign national in China, you couldn't really teach Chinese nationals anything but English. So I didn't want to teach at one of the schools that educated international students, which are called the schools for foreign nationals. So while there are many more schools now um, in China that educate foreign nationals, at that time there was just a handful. And you would have found in those schools, be they UK schools, you know, you would really have found QTS trained teachers out of the UK at those schools. At the American schools, you would have found state licensed US teachers. And that wasn't me. I mean, I was a someone who had stumbled into China because of my own interest in the geography. So just setting that stage is to say that, that quite honestly, in, in 2000, moving into education didn't really seem like an option. So I turned a little bit more to my art side, I guess you could say. And my first job in China was in advertising. And I really moved from there. So from 2000 to 2005, I worked much more in the corporate sector, although for very small organizations, advertising and market research. But then in 2005, I felt like many of the opportunities had changed and I started to pivot back to education. So we can talk a little bit about that education journey, but I always think it's important. You know, a lot of us as educators have to be comfortable with the fact that we don't all come from the same background and it can feel very difficult to progress in education if you don't hold the same credentials and the same experience as many of the other wonderful educators in the world. So I really had to grapple with do I have a place in education? Can I can I move into this based on my knowledge and understanding of Chinese and Chinese young people? Or do I really need to make sure that I've gone the traditional route? So I think I, I represent the non-traditional path to education and educational leadership. Well, I really like that because I think that's the one thing that I always feel as well is that slightly sort of square peg in a round hole scenario because you know I'm obviously passionate about education this podcast has been going since 2016 but I'm actually a professional musician my route into education is teaching drums and percussion I'm vice chair of the National Association for Primary Education because I knew someone that was looking to bring someone in there but that was kind of almost for a parent sort of perspective to begin with in terms of sort of giving that kind of voice so I sort of talk about education but I'm not um, a normal teacher in a classroom I'm not someone who went into the PGCE 
Um, and at the same time, I kind of think that it sort of frees you up to sort of bring your own self to the conversation, like I say, which is different than maybe everybody else in that sort of traditional setting. Definitely. You know, business is kind of a bad word in some ways in, in the educational landscape. And I and while not a traditional business person, I still have really been able to pull from different ideas that, that I was exposed to in, in a lot of ways, having primarily educated Chinese nationals. It was so interesting to work in an advertising agency of 100 people as the only foreign national and understand the culture that I'm not a native part of from a different angle. And so I've always felt that my time in the classroom and my time in the, in the school has been informed by all of those experiences really in, in society and sort of dealing with culture. Because at the end of the day, right, it's, it's about ex respecting and understanding other cultures if you want to work successfully in international education, you know, not having a colonial mindset. I'm here to teach, you know, children a better system than my own. And I really felt like I grew my own experience from within, paired that with the educational experience I'd had abroad. And, and I think it helped me be more empathetic and understanding of my students and the complexity of their own future career paths and trajectories and all of that. So it's it's been a great been a great ride, but also did need to ultimately study a bit more and, and gain some more education credentials because I think those programs also have value, but non-traditional start path. Yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about how sort of the foundation of the school and, and what that kind of perspective was, like you say, for, from from your sort of vision, as it were, and, and, and what you were then able to, to offer people that maybe they wouldn't have had before. So just to get in a little bit to the background of what this school has been in, in Shanghai, I think it also talks, it speaks a lot to what's going on in the world as China kind of thinks about the ways in which it's going to engage with the West. So education is a highly regulated sector in China, and, and we can dive into a little bit of our own stereotypes about what Chinese education means. But, you know, in a nutshell, China has an incredibly literate population. Huge amounts of energy and investment have been put in ensuring that the 220 million plus students of the country have access to education, which is which is no small feat. You know, we're, we're talking about vast sort of differences in socioeconomic status and access. So the typical traditional education and system in China has less focus on the international piece. And we could say that, that many of our education systems lack that piece, but they don't have a curriculum that specifically addresses a lot of the kind of components of international education that we look at more now, skills, approaches to learning, different um, perspectives, right? Thinking about things uh, that you may not agree with and learning how to understand things that you may not agree with. So the Chinese government, the Shanghai Education Commission, started the school that I was, was part of founding in order to provide international curriculum access to Chinese nationals, but also to try to ensure that those Chinese national students were still gaining proficiency in their native language of Chinese, and taking humanities courses also in Chinese to sort of support their domestic understanding. So 
while that doesn't sound radical really when you're when you're living in a place where you don't automatically have access to international curricula it is quite quite unique where one of my school shanghai chibao dwight high school is one of only 21 schools in shanghai authorized to give chinese nationals international curriculum and also we are only a high school a three-year high school because the other spaces of, of one through nine education are still very highly regulated and then there's a lot of restrictions on what you can teach and what materials you can use so i've seen this little three-year window of high school as such an amazing opportunity to work with very bright very curious very interested young young people who then so a hundred percent of the students graduating from our high school of 600 students total do go abroad for university, be that the UK, the US, Canada, many, many different countries, but primarily the US and the UK. So we have to prepare them for that. And there's a lot of skills that go into that that journey. And so do you think they come into the school with that is their intention, sort of that that at the beginning of those three years, and you're able to sort of help create that? Or do you, is there a little bit of kind of, we like what this is offering, and then the exposure they get almost sends them in that direction because you sort of opened up that water possibility? That's a great question because actually it's so complex to have access to an education like we offer that it's it, it needs to be as intentional as possible. But that's not to say that it always is. And I and I really appreciate that, that idea of, of what you're asking because intercultural understanding and dealing with different cultures is really hard. And you like to think that families are helping their child make a decision intentionally about international education. Hey, you're gonna be moving 6,000, you know, 10,000 kilometers away from home. Are you prepared for that? But it's very hard to do that when you're 14 years old. So while yes, some students are on a pathway where they're thought about leaving China for education, higher education since they were small. And a lot of those families have invested in English, language learning, they've been planning. But for some other students, they decide very late. And by late, I mean, as they are sitting the examination for high school. So in China, in a school like ours, you test in through a national exam to your high school and you have to fill out where you want to go and you have to get a certain score. We participate in that system. So students have to be very competitive, very academically capable to be admitted to, to our school. And again, some of them did so well in the national system, right? They really are the top of the top of that national testing system. But then all of a sudden they show up ready for an international education and that pivot doesn't always work, right? You may have been wonderful at taking examinations in mathematics your whole life and very complex mathematics. And then all of a sudden you get to, to our high school and you have to write an essay using mathematics to solve a problem. And some students think, what have I gotten myself into? I mean that does make sense. I mean, I mean, every anyone listening, no matter where they're listening to in the world, will will know that. And certainly, as someone who's based in the UK, you know, it, it's very much a system here where you're starting to be taught to get through the exams. And while there there is that sort of broader curriculum and those things as well, they do feel like they're a little bit kind of 
peripheral in some ways and and it's only sort of hopefully creating an environment throughout the education system where that starts to have a little bit more of a kind of a, a collegiate feel because we certainly know that um, employers are looking for those skills we certainly know that that young people thrive on those skills and it's understanding that in the round isn't it which like you say if you've only ever been taught to the test or or you've only ever kind of felt this is all I need to do to learn that is such a kind of a curveball when you suddenly realize oh there's a bigger world out of here not just in terms of geography but in terms of the way people think and and what they're trying to achieve i think thinking about the big you know cambridge and and a levels and igcses and also the international baccalaureate i've been involved with the teaching of of all of those different curricula i really enjoy the portfolio of evidence process during the pandemic when schools couldn't sit exams because in some ways, while it's so hard for, for young people and it's been such a difficult time over the past few years, we need to innovate from those experiences. And I love the idea of our big you know, examination bodies having to move towards a system where you really examine evidence that, that young people have created. And while, yes, I know that any system of assessment can be turned into something rote, Still, I think we have had these little windows of opportunity, and, and that's terrifying, of course, to students and teachers when they think all of a sudden their work is going to be examined and they aren't going to just sit in the exam. But, but I'm certainly a believer in continuing to push the envelope on not breaking everything apart, but, but evolving from within and trying to adapt. And, and for us, so for our students, that evolution really comes from, from having to face the International Baccalaureate or Cambridge exams, because while yes, they're exams, they, they're very different to what they might have taken as a young person and, and can be quite, quite challenging. So you sort of mentioned about the, the different approach from a school setting. How did that work in terms of the staff that you had around you as well? Because I guess that has to be a different mindset as well, both um, no, no matter what their background. So at our school, we, we and, and just to, to add, we are allowed to take non-Chinese passport holders. So we have had a, some, a few international passport holding students who've come on an amazing journey of attending essentially a Chinese high school. And, but the majority of the students are Chinese and our faculty is two thirds Chinese national, one third international. And our international faculty is very international. And that's been deliberate, uh, our you know construction of a, of a team of about 45 of us that is very diverse and then diverse in, in many different ways, passport, uh, educational background, personal background, interest, uh, race, ethnicity, et cetera, age, cognitive. But the, the, the thing about it is really, you know, having these students have exposure to different teachers. And when you start a school like mine around you, be that parents or administration, government, they often feel, well, of course, all of your teachers will be hired from directly from abroad, right? You'll go to TES, you'll go to the, the big search firms, and you will identify teachers who are experts in the international curriculum you're going to teach. But I kind of turned that on its head originally, because I knew that if I relocated everyone from abroad to China, that I would be dealing with huge levels of, of, of intercultural gap that I would have to fill. And so I wanted a certain select group of teachers that were already teaching in China. And many of the individuals that I hired year one were teaching in much more 
far, you know, far flung outlier cities than Shanghai. So I actually used Shanghai, which is a vibrant and, and more international city to pull people from other parts of China. I knew they would be fine in terms of the cultural conflict and challenge. Then I wanted a, a handful of teachers who were teaching abroad and bringing some of those best practices from abroad. And we really worked on training and, and focused a lot on upskilling our own teachers into what we needed them to be. So certainly having 15 years of international baccalaureate teaching experience didn't mean that you just showed up and, and, and taught the same way because you were teaching students with a very different background. So let me just add a little nuance to that. When we have students in, in, in year 10 or, or year 11 by, by UK grades, those students have previously had one to two years of physics and chemistry. Okay, that would be different to the US system. And so from a content perspective in their science classroom, they would have had a lot of content knowledge in both of those very challenging subjects, but they would not have and potentially never have done a lab themselves. They would never have done laboratory work. They would have been used to teacher demo. So teachers demonstrating different scientific principles, but not having just gotten their own hands into it. And I think that, that those key understandings, you know, we're going to need to spend time in that first year of science focused not so much on content, but more on application. And how do you then use what you know about science to do labs, to ask questions, to be curious about why, you know, the world is the way it is and to try to use science to uncover that. So very small difference, but very big for a teacher who really would need to say, all right, I can't just open up the textbook and deliver what I've been used to delivering in my life prior to arriving at Chibao Dwight. So great experience. I mean, I have worked with some extraordinary educators and dedicated giving people. And, and really that's been probably the biggest joy of my time in, in educational leadership has been students are wonderful and, and exciting and complex, but teachers are what make everything come together. And we often talk on the podcast about that kind of shared learning experience, you know, like I say, rather than I'm imparting the knowledge, let's sort of learn together. And like I say, I, I love the fact you talked about the nuance because nothing is straightforward and, and every situation is different, even if it's in the same country, in the same school, in the same year group, for example. Um, but it, there, it's all very well saying, like, we're going to go on a project now and we're going to learn together. But like you said, having the fact that the students are having to do something which is new to them in a new way, but the teachers are having to do something maybe that's new to them, but it's a slight, it's a sort of a shared path, but a slightly different experience for each one. And I find that sort of gray area of, of a, like I say, that nuance of a, it's a shared learning experience and a growth experience, but from two slightly different perspectives, but still a shared experience, I guess. No question. And I use a metaphor, which has particularly resonated with a few of my, my, colleagues from the UK. Um, I have a fantastic long-term colleague from Northern Ireland, and um, he's just a brilliant educator and another young woman that worked with him in London. And they are, they are really the best of the UK system in terms of uh, outputting teachers that are, that are fantastic at what they do and so well-trained and so great at classroom management. And, and I just have nothing but just the the best things to say about these two individuals. But for both of them, I've used this metaphor of bamboo. You know, 
You've got to come in and you've got to be agile, but you've got to retain all of that brilliant training and that mastery of subject that you have and that you got, you gained through the UK system. But then you got to bend. So you got to be strong like bamboo, but you've got to be able to blow in the breeze and then just stay with it. And, and I think that it's been a useful metaphor because no matter who you are, you've got to come into these international environments and particularly a place like China, where not everybody around you speaks English, right? It's, it's not a, a country with just you can hop in a cab and you're, you're speaking English right away to someone. And it requires a huge amount of heart and a huge amount of agility and flexibility. And to me, bamboo is the ultimate metaphor for that. I love that because I think it's very easy to get into the weeds of of being overwhelmed by everything like you say whether it's you know where you're living the the language um a new system you know a myriad of things but i think to have a very straightforward idea of what you're doing and how you, how you're bringing your strengths to the party I, I i think is is really key because then you feel like you have everything that you need it might be a little bit uncomfortable to begin with or it might be it might be new you might fall out of your comfort zone but you you sort of rely on all of those skills that you've got and you've also like say the support element is really really key isn't it because you then feel like you know how you can grow into it and there's going to be a positive future from it. The other part of it is, which is so interesting, and this doesn't resonate with everyone. I, I totally understand that this is not a fit for, for every educator. But when you think about the amount of vulnerability that both the young students and also the teachers have to bring into a classroom like ours. So let's just break it down, right? You're, we've talked about the students. They are often walking in unknown to what they are facing. And they're certainly not at all informed about what it's going to be like to actually live abroad. And my, I've brought up, you know, three classes of students through the pandemic who are now moving abroad and the world has changed. And, and some of the perceptions about their home country have changed throughout these last few years. And that, that requires a huge amount of risk taking. And by the way, a lot of my students would, would recoil from the idea that they're a risk taker. That sounds dangerous. That doesn't sound comfortable, but they are incredible risk takers. Many of their parents do not speak English and have never been abroad and have made a decision to send their child outside of China for different opportunities. And it's it to me, it's just it's such a spirit of entrepreneurship and, and risk taking. But then the teachers with the vulnerability, right, is if you're Chinese national teacher at my school, you are teaching the international baccalaureate or Cambridge A-level or IGCSE curriculum. That is not the curriculum you grew up with. So that in and of itself means you can't rely on how you were taught. You've got to figure out your own way. And then if you're an international teacher, you're walking into a room where the mother tongue language of every single student in the room with this save a few exceptions is a non-native speaker of English. They speak Mandarin. And that is very vulnerability inducing as well. And so I think while many teachers don't love the idea of that courage to teach, right? There's a, there's a great book by Parker Palmer, which some teachers just abhor and others just love, which is called The Courage to Teach. And it is, it, it requires courage. And I think what, what I've seen is, is, you know, everything has beauty and all experiences have beauty, even the, the very challenging ones that, that many of my teachers and students have faced at school, but they, um you get to this almost more beautiful place by embracing and facing that challenge and and it's it's a growth mindset certainly you know just facing things and, and keeping on keeping on but it's also 
it's it's not about fear of failure because the al the alternative isn't failure it's just sitting with discomfort and we all know discomfort is hard uncomfortable conversations at work are hard parenting our children and having uncomfortable conversations is incredibly hard i have three children and one is a teenager and i am really in the middle of that at the moment myself but facing situations each day that that make us deal and face that discomfort head on i think is incredibly incredibly personally uh, informative for our own growth and self-awareness yeah I, th I think that's incredibly important and the thing that just struck me as you were talking there i was just thinking about the pandemic and and the fact that when when you're sort of thrown into this challenge for whatever it is whether it's a pandemic whether in your you know it might be an illness it might be a relationship related thing you kind of you go into overdrive and you do what you need to do and people more often than not just amaze themselves and the people around them of what is possible I, I think that sort of fear element is almost even harder when there seems to be a normal status quo apart from that like you say that unrest in you that thinks no this isn't for me or it can be different or I, I want it to be a little bit different but there's nothing quite pushing you to suddenly let go of the shackles and go well I have to do it differently now because there's a pandemic and I can't go into school <laughs> that, that that's that's an easy change you know but when it's that kind of it could be the same tomorrow or next year as it has been for the last 20 years but I want it to be different. And, I, and I, I think that's a really interesting thing. And like you say, you're sort of almost a, a kind of a hotbed of all of those things because people have, have made that decision to do it differently from a very kind of, like you say, almost restrained starting point, but no, they want to step into something new. No question. And I think certainly if you're, if you're sitting in your home country as a teacher and you're thinking about growing on that, that journey abroad, just, give yourself a break you know recognize that that it it you could regret your decision or you could love your decision but more likely you're just gonna work to be comfortable <clears throat> with that decision and i think um it's i certainly encourage anyone who's listening that's thought about making a change abroad to to just go for it i, I think don't look back and so much of what you learn abroad, even if you only stay abroad, will inform you when you get home. I have a, a lovely teacher from Birmingham who was in China and just really wanted to be back teaching essentially in the school that she grew up in. And, you know, she's, I'm sure, a much more informed young educator in the UK now as a result of her few years abroad. So we should probably talk a little bit about the fact that having, you know, literally dove in, drove into it or dived into this is, is, a, is an idea of kind of change your position is now changing too and 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 so talk me through kind of how that was for you in terms of, of how you feel about it and and also like I say that that growth mindset and that progression and the excitement of, of what may be to come I really loved my job in China so I spent the last 10 years right starting Chibao Dwight with my partner Chinese principal named Wang Fang and our chairman who was just a really wonderful Chinese long-term state school educator with just so many fantastic ideas. And I could have done it forever. I really feel like I was happy in Shanghai. My family was there really uh, living my best life in a way. But 20 years from now, would I feel that if I were still doing the same thing that I had made the right choice? I, I don't know the answer to that question. So I spoke with uh, our headquarters, which is in New York at Dwight School in New York, and started to say, you know, what would be opportunities 
should I want to stay with Dwight? We're a, a school group. We're eight schools uh, total globally, and I'm very dedicated to the organization. They've given me great uh, autonomy and trust. And as I said, no one would have made me a head of school but them. So probably wouldn't have gotten Chiba Dwight open very easily without me. It was just a perfect match. And so I do want to stay with Dwight and grow with Dwight. And just said, listen, if, if, if I want to make a change, what would that look like? What are the possibilities? And we had a perfect successor to my position in China, who we hired four years ago. And he's American. He can take over the helm of the American principalship. Fantastic, wonderful educator and friend. And so that's wonderful, right? You've always got to work on the succession plan. You've got to think, you know, someday I will move on or someday somebody will be better than me. And I think I was great for a startup and really that catalyst energy of anything's possible, a bit messy, you know, I'm a little bit all over the place, not your typical principal maybe. And he's really a wonderful option. His name is Robbie Shields. He's Robbie's just a great option for taking the institution to that next phase of, you know, being on track and organized and 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 ready to continue to go from strength to strength. So Dwight gave me the opportunity to take on a position which is called the East Asia Education Director. We have a school in Seoul, South Korea. We have the school at Shanghai, China, and we are working on other projects in the region. And so I'll be back in New York this coming year and have an opportunity to continue to work on Asia. And really it's a what's next. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly have other opportunities and I will put myself in, in line to try to have an opportunity to take those on. So it's exciting. It's different, right? I'm one of those people who does very well with the structure of a school day. So I love the the framework. I feel like the school day for me is guardrails. It keeps me, I'm not a hybrid work person. And I know some do that really well. I need to be with people I'm an extrovert at work, but an, almost an introvert in my personal life. I just can get into school and feel excited about being there every day. So do you want to still have that day-to-day -day school interaction? But for the next year, at least, we'll, we'll work more at a, a kind of coordinating global initiatives level and also looking forward to that challenge. And I think what I love so much about this conversation is that no matter where you're listening to this, in any given school, in any given country, in any age level, so much of what we're talking about, I think, will resonate with everybody. Like I say, it's about changing your perspective, about understanding your journey within any given role, the ability to want to take on a new challenge, to, to sort of understand where you are and what you want to do. And I, and I think that's the exciting thing about the education system globally is the fact it's actually a very personal one in terms of there are so many options and you just need to look at them and see whether it's from your career point of view, whether it's for your students. And and I love what you said before about the, the not being able to fail because then it just frees you up to be able to kind of take whichever road it is, you know, like say that bamboo idea, just sort of going with whatever you, wherever it takes you, whatever you think feels right. And I think that's a very different sort of starting point than this is a school that's in Shanghai and it will look like this and it has to be like this because actually you can take the model that you spoke about in terms of the learning opportunities and the way you you embrace people's relationships and, and their learning experiences and, and that just works from a, a human to human point of view whatever the like say the practicalities of the actual education structure. No question and the other thing too is it recognizing that the team is so important and I think on your podcast, you do a really good job of, of raising things that are not necessarily just the traditional, 
I love how on your website you talk about the talking about other important areas of life, community, finance, health, fitness. You know, if you don't try on these different hats, how are you going to find what, what is community? What is the community that you want? Right. And and I think that that's one of those amazing experiences. If nothing else, international experiences help you grow self-awareness. But the reality is not everybody can afford to get on a plane. Not everybody has this kind of privilege. And so that's why I think in, in a lot of ways, although I focus so much on my East Asia education background myself, this art piece for me keeps coming up because I think, okay, if we don't have access and we don't have these opportunities, how do we do this anyway? And that's the, the brilliance of programs and literature and, and, and reading and libraries and the arts because it helps us stand in other shoes. It helps us understand people who are different to ourselves. And I think that just so in schools specifically, not even just in the China context, I want to be someone who remains an advocate for arts education and for uh, literacy and, and, and reading education, library education, just because you can have this experience of intercultural understanding and stepping into someone else's shoes without leaving your, your hometown as well. So I wouldn't want to sort of put forward the idea that you must get on an airplane to, to experience what we're talking about. I think it's just that you have to have that mindset of how you approach things. And you know what? I mean, if I, as a parent, if I had one mantra for my own children, I just wish that they would say yes to things. I try to be someone who says yes, you know, hey, do you want to try this new fish? Yes. Why not? You know, and, but I think as parents, we, we often can feel like we just can't get our kids to say yes to things. So we can find other ways to help encourage them to, to embrace these embrace different ideas and embrace different communities and, and have gratitude and, and have empathy for others. And, and that's so important in our world. So I've certainly gained that from this international experience, but I think there are other ways to get at the same, at the same issue. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well put. And, and obviously, as a musician myself, you know, the arts are incredibly important. And certainly growing up, I certainly felt it was my way of, of connecting and expressing myself that was it wouldn't have mattered where I lived or, or who the people were around me because we had a common voice, whatever that happened to be. And it happens to be music for me and specifically, you know, pl playing drums and percussion. But, you know, as soon as you were surrounded by like-minded people, you, you felt at home, you felt like you could show up as yourself. You felt like that you could communicate in, in the shared experience. And I think that's why the arts are really important. But I think it's also like you say, that's a very different, um perspective as well when let's even if you are moving internationally or you are slightly out of your comfort zone it's not necessarily about making it look a certain way or fitting into a certain box it's about almost getting rid of all those barriers and just knowing that there's something there with where that you can connect in from your your um from the things that you enjoy doing your passions your insights and and shared interests and i, and I think often like you say the arts and, and that part of your world is is where you're going to connect probably on the most fundamental basis to begin well, with i think you raised two really significant points there completely which is this concept of language so whether music is a language or we're speaking about learning a foreign language or a second language you know the the world is is changing with with artificial intelligence and and many people might feel that learning a second language isn't necessary because we'll have translation software that can do it for us right and and it's amazing what can be done with technology now for translation but 
just like playing music, when you step into a foreign language, you completely change the way your brain is functioning. You know, you're, you are requiring your brain, whether you're playing an instrument or you're speaking in your non-native tongue, you are requiring your brain to do lots of hard work to cognate and to be able to, to you know, your, your brain, fundamental brain chemistry has changed. And, and as a result, something that the second part of that idea, and I and I I wish more than anything that I was a musician. I'm I'm just hopeless. I've taken so many different music lessons, but I love music and I enjoy music. And I think there's a, a common experience of being outside one's own culture and my understanding from musicians is you step out of shame. You know, you 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 under when you when you hear about musicians that have terrible stage fright and you think to yourself, how is that possible? These are amazingly talented people who can share their their talent with the world but yet for some musicians it's incredibly difficult to, to take that step to share the same thing goes for for me stepping out of new york where i grew up and and living in this in this different culture meant that i left a lot of the shame and baggage of my own culture behind i think i've been uh, benefited as a woman in work, developing, not thinking about a lot of the kind of cultural boxes that I might have been trapped in a little bit in New York and in my own culture. And maybe that's a bit of a deep concept, but I've, I've always tried to help my students also work with this idea that, that you can sometimes feel shackled by the expectations that you intrinsically understand because you intrinsically know the culture. But when you don't know it and you don't know what the markers of shame or success are, you can really be freed. And it, it almost does become like you're, you're performing because you're performing in a new culture and you can leave a lot of the things about your own culture that were difficult for you behind. So maybe there's some connection there with what it feels like to be a musician. I don't know yeah absolutely i think i think that's it it's it, i think like I say the the language in connection is kind of the key and i think i think it's i think it's easy to sort of sort of get involved in it too analytically in some ways sometimes it it just is different for everybody and i think if it gives you something and it gives you a somewhere to step into which is an experience which is positive and a shared one and a and gives you a voice in some way or another then i think that's it's a step you want to take and 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 it can go in many different directions from there but i think i think what you the way you sort of um framed that i think is absolutely perfect and so, like you said so many different ways as as a musician myself and like you say you loving music we can connect in that way without you having to be an instrumentalist and us be on a concert stage together but i think the essence of what we know together is is the same and, and i love the, how those sort of lines can just sort of like I say we can get rid of the boxes and, and, and sort of join a sort of a common goal and the other thing too with the music sort of analogy is is when we get back to that diversity and i know diversity is is something that that's being discussed a lot particularly in the west at the moment but you wouldn't you know there are a concert with one instrument or all everyone on the same instrument just doesn't sound as beautiful as one with different instruments. And, and it is, I've always focused on hiring people because they were not like me. You know, you, who wants to be in an echo chamber? Just like who wants to, to not hear any nuance in a, in a, in a musical performance. And I think that really trying to, to put yourself in situations where you might hear things you don't like is is very valuable and i'm certainly not saying that you have to agree with with 
ideas that you you abhor or make you uncomfortable but at the same time sitting with paradox you know being able to hold kind of two conflicting ideas in your mind and start to understand what is conjecture what is opinion what is fact how do we understand those things i mean we live in a world where it's it, it it's so important for young people to be able to parse information and understand what is even real to them and i think that again this is another place where i've been given that opportunity to listen to so many different opinions and to try to form my own and, and create my own value system um, good you know yeah <laughs> absolutely and, and and we've talked so much about school experiences and various people you've been influenced by but what you just sort of touched on there in terms of of that sort of knowledge and i'm curious is there is there a a piece of advice that you've been given but i suspect more it'll be the sort of advice that you might give somebody else or give your younger self now that, that you think would be would be really supportive for you sort of looking back as a as, as a younger brantley that i guess you may not have necessarily taken on board at the time but you know you now know with that hindsight and experience would be incredibly supportive i think it has to do with kind of the idea of perfectionism and i am not a perfectionist but i think my younger self strove more to be a perfectionist and i've seen this a lot in teachers who have checked every box and were the best student in their own classes and so they become a teacher and for me i felt like i needed to be better more perfect a uh, better student you know have those credentials and while all of that is important i think that i would have told my younger self to just really do give it all you've got really try do it go for it and don't focus so much on what that definition of perfect might be get there in a more circuitous way so just there's a there's a, a saying in Chinese, which is which means to cross the river by feeling the stones underfoot, you know, and you can see this sort of metaphor, this image. And I think I would have told myself to just give yourself a break, keep moving forward and don't always strive to be perfect. And there's always a resource which has something which is important to us. And this can be professional, but also personal. I know you've mentioned a book earlier in the show, but is there a, a podcast, a book, a video, song, film, anything which you'd like to share? So I'm an avid reader and I also love audio content with podcasts. And I listen to a very, very broad range of, of different, um, different podcasts and books. Most recently, I'm listening to an audio book by Shane O'Mara, so that's S-H-A-N-E, O'Mara, M-A-R-A, and it's it's called In Praise of Walking, and my personal sort of meditative practice, what I need to do to relax is I love to walk, and not even hike, just an urban walk is fine, and I think if you have found walking a part of your life and you're trying to understand more about the incredible mind-body connection that we get just from walking. It's free. It's out in the air. Um, I would recommend listening even just to or reading the prologue of this book in praise of walking and, and sort of taking on some of that manifesto for yourself about the power of walking. I love that. It's certainly something I like to do. And I and I certainly know whenever I don't have the time to do it, I feel like it's the time that I need it the most. And so it's, I'm going to definitely be checking that out as well. 
Um, and obviously, just to round up, fire as in educational fire is obviously important. And um, and we talk about that in terms of feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. And so I'm always intrigued to know which of those four words just springs out to you and, and why is that? So I think empowerment is is really what I I resonate with out of those four, just because I think we have such a duty to the next generation to try to empower their success and to try to help them be better than we are and make better decisions. And and there's so many challenges for young young people with with mental health struggles and lack of access and inequity and no voice. And we as the adults, you know, it's we've had our time. And I'm looking to the next generation and do want to do whatever I can to empower them to to have opportunities like I've had, but also to to find their way and, and to live their best lives. Fantastic. Well, what a beautiful way to end. So Brantley, thank you so much for being here. It's been fascinating chatting to you. And um I just I love the internationalness of it and I love the fact that it's as personal to me as I think it will be to everyone else that's been listening. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you, Mark. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.